Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. It's Des. It's Friday. I'm in the Hayfield Manor in Cork. Nobody knows, because I'm doing shows in Clonakilty. And normally I would be quite public about being in the Hayfield, which, by the way, is my favorite hotel in the world. But I've been quiet about it this time, because actually I didn't want people to know, because I have a lot to do. Uh, You know, I have a lot going on at the moment. And I just thought it would be great to be able to be here without the social pressures of catching up with people. Um, So I'm hiding out here in the Hayfield and I wanted to get get an episode up, it's Friday, before I go on to work on uh, Mia Mama, which has started, which we're going to talk about in a, in a minute. But first, a bit of admin. Number one, I still have the never-ending cold, which, if you don't have it, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it seems to be a thing. It seems to be a very distinct characteristic of this year's cold-slash-flu season, is that you have you have like a, a a chest infection or something scratchy going on for a very long period of time. And I was on stage in Clonakilty last night and I asked how many people here have the never ending cold and like fifteen people raised their hand. I mean it's it's a distinct thing. You know, when you describe what's going on for you, a lot of people will identify. And I, I'm not moaning, I'm just saying I have it. And I can hear it in my voice. This is now probably well this is the second or third ep with this scratchy voice. And I know my voice is quite scratchy anyway, but it's overly scratchy now. And I'm getting like, I've got phlegm and all that stuff. I mean, it's disgusting. But anyway, I know that I have it. I've had it. I feel like I've been hoarse since January 31st. Uh, January 31st, since, since New Year's Eve, December 31st. And so there's that. Uh, also, if... There is a music bed underneath today's episode, which, if there is, you're listening to it right now. Um, I am aware that that's what Blind Boy does, and I am admitting that for this episode, I'm basically borrowing that idea from Blind Boy because I want to talk about stuff that's personal to me, and it soothes me when I listen to Blind Boy. And he's not the first person to ever put music under a voice. And uh, so consider it, Uh, the highest form of flattery that I have been inspired by the Blind Boy podcast to put a music bed under this episode. And please nobody message me accusing me of stealing the idea from Blind Boy. First of all, I'm a fan, not just of Blind Boy, but of the Rubber Bandits, which goes back a long, long way. Uh, So I hope I don't get a phone call from Blind Boy being like, music under the podcast is mighty. I speak softly with music going underneath my voice and I talk about mental health. So, you can't do that. I hope I don't get that phone call. Um, Hello, you. 
listening licorice lick he always does that little intro thing anyway uh i thought today well there's two things i want to talk about today but first let me talk about the one that's personal to me and then i do want to talk about this horrific thing of this 17 year old boy's body being found all over dublin which of course is a very dark thing to discuss but i don't actually want to talk about that specifically i just want to talk about addiction and uh, the legalization of drugs, and just give a quick synopsis of what I think based on my experience, uh, both, you know, getting clean and sober, though I was never a heroin addict, but, uh, you know, I haven't taken any of the um, serious mood-altering substances, even though I do drink caffeine, um, and, you know, there are, there you know, like, there's certain things within the acceptable forms of mood-altering substances that I have taken, but I think people know what I mean when I say uh, the serious ones I haven't taken since 1995. So I did want to just throw my my two cents worth on all that because there's a lot of uh, a lot of chat about that, you know, outside the realm of the world that I sort of was involved with for a long time. Um, but first. Uh, Mia Mama has begun in Ireland and because well because uh, you know one of well two very listened to apps one on the shift and one here on the Des Bishop podcast was one day and five days after my mom died and you know I was so happy that I that I did those because uh, you know on I'll I, I, you can't go back to those moments, but I do have uh, the recording of how I felt. And writing, obviously, is, is super important. But there is something nice about uh, having recorded my voice because, you know, you can go back and hear it. You know, you can, you know, like when you look at a picture from a couple of years before and then you realize, like, oh, my God, I really was very tired at that time. Or, wow, I was so much healthier back then. You know, you can see things in the picture, but I can hear things in the podcast that, you know, I, I quite like to have been able to listen back to and realize how difficult it was at that time. So now it's nearly 10 months since my mom died and I'm now embarking on a national tour of Ireland doing a stand-up comedy show about, about my mother, basically. So it, it has definitely been a, a, a check, you know, a title check on where I'm at because, well, I've been doing a ton of interviews. I mean, I did the Late Late Before Christmas, um, but last week I did 10 interviews in one day on Thursday talking a lot about my mother, particularly a, a, a quite intense interview with, with Roshin Ingle, which should be coming out soon. And, you know, it... it 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 made me real, you know. It, it it just showed like I really am in the depths of, of grief, which sounds more harrowing than it is. In that it's just an emotion, you know. And I did a show on Saturday night in Ashburn, which was fine, you know. I mean, it was in a function room in a hotel. So when I'm in a function room in a hotel, I don't have the video, you know. I'm gonna have like some some images and some video stuff, and an exercise bike in the full show of Mia Mama, but I'm not doing that in the function rooms because there is just stand-up, you know, there is just straight stand-up stuff in Mia Mama. Uh, so uh, I just did the stand-up, but it was a pretty rowdy crowd, 
You know, it wasn't like a crowd that came to see a show about a dead mom. And now, don't get me wrong, the show was great, but it was pretty like, it was pretty like in the the cauldron of stand-up. And, you know, and I did do some come out your black and tans material, and I, I, I did plenty of non-Mia Mama stuff, particularly early on. And I, the audience definitely struggled with the transition when I sort of shifted into the mother stuff. Um, but anyway, it was a great show, and there was something kind of exciting about that, almost uh, battling with the rowdy part, the rowdy part of the audience, battling with them to have the right to make these jokes that are, you know, about my mom, you know, because of course this concept of what should be funny and what shouldn't be funny is nonsense because all, you know, there's, there's humor in everything, you know, once you're not hurting anybody or, or once, once you're not hurting anybody to the point where, you know, it's a genuine problem, you know, uh, uh, so there was something fun about that battle, uh, but it, I didn't get any sense after, you know, I was really busy. I was going off to Tenerife the next morning with Joanne McNally to film this RTE show, which meant that I had to wake up at 3.30 a.m. So I, I, I didn't allow it. I didn't allow anything of that night to sink in other than, yeah, that's done. And I had a couple of good improvs, which will, which will add to the show as we move forward. And it's pretty happy. Then last night I was in Clonakilty. And, uh, you know, there was less of a buzz than uh, that first gig in Ashburn. Uh, when I say less of a buzz, great crowd, but just the first 15 in Ashburn, it was just very easy to just get 15 minutes of, uh, you know, the, 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 the news of the week jokes, you know, and just general banter. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but sometimes that initial... 10 to 15, you know, you can get quite a lot out of it, even though there's not much going on. It's more like audience interaction and energy. And you can ride that sometimes. And particularly when you're when you're when you're just starting a new show and you don't have a hundred percent faith in it, uh, it's fun to just give yourself just take a little bit of pressure off the rest of the show by absolutely annihilating the first 10 to 15. Um with the, you know, not the main body of the show. So in Clonakilty, I was thinking I would do the same. And, you know, that energy wasn't there. It was a good crowd. And it was, but, but the energy wasn't, I just, I wasn't able to ride the wave. It may have been that I was exhausted. Who knows? But, you know, that's been going on for decades. Sometimes you ride the wave, sometimes you don't. So I wasn't riding the wave in Clonakilty. And so, I was into the Mia Mama part of the show much quicker than uh, I had been in Ashburn. So now it's like, oh, fuck, now this Mia Mama stuff has to hold up. You know, now this Mia Mama stuff is, is, is what's going down to this, you know, to this crowd that's not like pumping yet. And I encountered the strange scenario where tons of people in the audience had no idea that this show was about my mom. So there was almost like a surprise by people. I think they expected me to come out and be like, you know, uh, Carveries. They're, you know, white sauce. And, you know, I, I, I think there was an expectation from the crowd that it was just more of a traditional Des Bishop show uh, than 
than what me and mama is. So I had to deal with that too. All this is dealable, by the way, because I've I've done I've done the stand-up. I've done bits of jokes about my mom in the comedy cellar to people that are watching five comics. They don't even know who I am, let alone know that I do jokes about my dead mom. So there's no problem there. I guess the problem is when you're trying to set up a bit more of a narrative arc. Uh, it can be tough if you're dealing with people that didn't know and the, you know those early jokes aren't like rapid fire, bang, 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 which is, the, which is the thing about shows that have a bit more of a narrative structure is the beginning of them. You know, you need a bit of leeway to set the whole thing up, you know? And in the shows where I don't have the video footage, I, you know, I just, I felt a little exposed, you know? I felt a little exposed last night of like, almost like I felt like, am I, is this not fair on these people? That I am indulging in this selfish act of talking about, you know, grief and death and my relationship with my mother to these people that just want jokes about black pudding. I don't know if, if people can can get that, but those were the kind of emotions that were rolling around in my head. And I, listen, I've had this before. I had this with my dad was nearly James Bond. The, the beginning of my dad was nearly James Bond was actually in Australia. And again, just like I said, I went to Adelaide and to Brisbane first. And I did like 50% other stuff and 50%, you know, these, these, these brewing jokes about my dad. And, you know, I, I used that buffer uh, to make sure because I didn't have faith in the other stuff, just like I was saying about Ashburn. But, uh, you know, this uh, I'm a little bit more advanced in, in, in my jokes about me and mama than I was about my dad was nearly James Bond in those early days. But then when I got to Melbourne, I was coming back a year after I had been in Melbourne. So actually... I lost a lot of that buffer because most of that buffer was jokes that I had done in Melbourne the year before. So in Melbourne, I had to get into the dad stuff earlier. And it was early doors. And I remember that first, first week and a half in Trades Hall in Melbourne, just feeling like the audience would have preferred if this was not the subject matter of the show. Even though it was called My Dad Was Nearly James Bond, and it said that I'm talking about the fact that my dad has gotten ill. You know, uh, that the, they weren't comfortable and I wasn't yet. And that has a lot to do with it. You sort of sell your comfortability. You, 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 you exude an energy that makes people feel comfortable. And I always feel at the beginning of these types of shows or even like a bit that you're doing, like even the consent bit that I did last year, it took me a while to make the audience know that I'm comfortable talking about this dif difficult subject matter. You know, uh, and, and that does take time. There's no way around it. It just takes time, you know. Uh, and, I don't, you know, and the funny thing is with stand-up, it's like it kind of doesn't happen until you do it for real anyway. So there's no point in doing too many, uh, you know, there's no point in doing too many warm-up shows because I really feel like you need to take it to the, you need to take it to the towns anyway, you know. Like you need to take it to West Cork. You need to take it to places. Because, you know, you do these warm-up shows in Dublin and, you know, it's all comedy fans. They're all coming for cheap tickets and they're just like so open to it. But you got to take it to the, you got to take it to the places where, it, you know, it, it's, it's just more difficult, you know. Anyway, I'm digressing. But that first week and a half in Melbourne, I remember I got a letter. Well, I didn't get a letter. A letter was sent to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I wish I could get a copy of it. But some man was very fucking angry that I was talking about all this stuff. 
and it was the angriest letter you could possibly imagine for, you know, let's face it, pretty innocuous jokes about my, my dad being sick, you know. I mean, it was a movie, you know, it became a really moving show. But in those early days, like, you know, there was it was just, you know, there was jokes about becoming the parents of your parents. There was jokes about the stress of being in the hospital. Like, it wasn't as heavy as this guy was making out. But it's, whatever it triggered in this guy, this guy was fucking livid. You know, he told me that. You know, he didn't pay for somebody to fucking work out their problems on stage. And this man needs therapy, not comedy. And it was really intense. Uh, so intense that it was almost entertaining. But at the same time, it does make you question, are you doing something wrong? Now, the last sort of two weeks of that, Melbourne, was really good. And actually, the show got quite a lot of momentum that last two weeks. You know, you get your head around it. And you get a flow. Uh, and when the flow happened, it was definitely worth it. But yeah, there is there is a... There is a period of time which happens. Now, by the way, last night's show was good, but I just know, you know, I just know the, you know, I just know I encountered, uh, I encountered things that I wasn't expecting, you know, last night. And I guess I knew it would come eventually, you know, you, you, you find, you find out where, where the pitfalls of, uh, in, in, in early parts of a run. But uh, I guess it just took me by surprise that I didn't have the, the buffer last night. But, you know, that, that, that's not even like, because I could go on there tonight, Friday night, because I'm on a clinic guilty again tonight. I could go on there tonight, Friday night, ride the energy for 15, 20, and I'll be annoyed t tomorrow night driving home that I didn't get into the Mia Mama stuff early enough. And actually, you know, I kind of wasn't, I, I wasn't true enough to the show. You know, so, so this isn't like, you know, this isn't gospel about, how I feel about the show, but anyway, uh, the, the the stuff that the, the rock solid stand up that I have, it just works, you know. But obviously, last night I was trying to push a couple of things, and you know, I just got jammed up once or twice talking about stuff that just straight up like dead ended, you know. And it left me really exposed because the next joke then is still about my fucking dead mom. And when you when you suddenly start to lose confidence that these people are happy that you're talking about this, it can be tough. Now, I pushed through it, and the bits worked. So it was never awkward. But there was a couple of times during the show where I was like, God damn it, man. Why the fuck am I doing this? You know, just for like 30 seconds. Because I didn't know. Because I haven't done this show that much. I didn't know if the next bit was going to rise it up again. You know? Um... But it's good, you know, it's good to know. And it's also good to be able to sit down then today and go, all right, you know, this needs to be pacier. Here's where you can chill it out a bit and be a bit more philosophical. You know, possibly here we need something, you know, light and fluffy. We need some sort of digression, you know, some because it's very easy to sort of like, you know, pick a moment to do a bit about something else. You know, you can pretend you met somebody at the funeral or or you can just mention what somebody was wearing you know it, it's it's easy to jump out of it if if it's necessary you know and it's always a battle between are we going to lose something if we jump out of it here or are we going to gain you know because you don't you also don't want to take people too far out that they get annoyed when you come back you know you don't want to sort of take people away from this show that's about certain subjects so that when you come back it's like oh god he's talking about this again you know um so all that's been going on, uh, you know, developing me and Mama. I mean, people keep asking me, is, do, does, is it tough to do the show? And actually, 
so far, and I, you know, because I have, by the way, I have done some warm ups just in case anyone's listening to this being like, how did he take a show on the road that wasn't ready? Like, I have done warm ups. I did warm ups in New York all throughout the summer. I did 20 minutes of this in Melbourne, coincidentally enough, uh, right after my mom died. That's actually where the show began. So th- there was 20 minutes before I did anything that was just rock solid that I was doing every night in Australia. Plus, I did runs in New York, and then I started running the bits in comedy clubs, which is huge. I mean, that's like miles ahead of where I was at with my dad was nearly James Bond when I when I started doing the show. So I, I you know, I, in fact, I was more prepared than take the points. I take the points. I got on stage in Cork last uh, last January, and I, I fucking had a notion. I had like six topics that I hadn't even done, and they were rippers, by the way, because sometimes I actually think I'm I'm better when when I when I'm loose. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I thrive in an atmosphere of improv while at the same time having a structure. You know, I, I, I work well uh, with where there's at least 15 to 20 percent room for riding the energy. That's 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 what I would say. I, I'm, I'm good at riding the energy. So it's good to have that. And sometimes as the show develops, sometimes you your your your, your bits, you know, eat into your 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 freedom time. And that that can take for me. Not all comics, but for me, that can take away because I actually like the, I, I I like writing the energy when it's there, and and I think I think I'm good at it, and I only say that because people have said that to me over the years. Even like ex girlfriend of mine, uh, always preferred when I was you know like all, you know loose and off on one. Uh, so anyway, that's that's, you know, it's my career. So obviously, I've paid attention to where my strengths are. I I I don't mean that that to sound arrogant or egotistical in any way. It's just that I'm 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 kind of uh, you know I'm letting you in on the insights of uh, where your head goes when you develop a show. So people say, is it tough to do the show? And you know, it, it's actually on stage. It's not emotionally draining. It's only as emotionally draining as any early part of a run is, in that you're just not as confident with the show as you will be in two weeks time there's just nothing you can do about that you know it's just the way it is especially with stand-up where it can always evolve you know so it's not like you're an actor on stage performing this script and you just go this is the show the might the writer might make a few changes but this is the show with stand-up like it constantly evolves you know so there's always going to be an element of of even on stage thinking what's good what's bad uh but in the early part you know it's 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 more flux it's it's in more flux than than later on but what I have found, whether it's difficult or actually whether it's a it's a blessing, talking about it and developing it, looking at the pictures, that has been tough. And the thing about grief is there's just a sadness that follows you around. It's not for me, it's not overwhelming. And it's not hard to deal with, but it's just there. It's like a presence, you know? And it gets stronger when you're doing an interview, say, with Roisin Ingle, and she's asking you tough questions. And it reminds you that grief isn't just about sadness, but just, you know, uh, this becomes a time in your life where you, you really think about your whole life and obviously you know because my relationship with my mother was such a profound relationship you know it really it gets to the core of who you are 
you know? And and that's tough. I mean, I think it's good because, you know, you end up with like a lost decade. I, I mean, I've talked about this before. I don't know where. I don't know if I talked about it pub- publicly, but, you know, my dad was diagnosed with cancer at the end of 2009. And my mother died in 2019. And there was a very small window where my mother was healthy between when my dad died and my mother started having problems. You know, it was a, well, it was a three-year window. But, you know, I was, you know, grieving for my dad. You know, so there was just a, there was a small window of, of, of normality before the mother stuff rose up. And you do sort of look back and go like, where has this decade gone? And where am I at as a human being? And, you know, I should probably point out, because I, it is relevant, that I had a very bad breakup in 2008. You know, I was engaged. We had been together a long time. And uh, we we had a breakup, a bad breakup. And uh, so, that, you know, there was that too. And... You know, at a time where possibly I could have been uh, perhaps getting back to normality on the relationship front, my dad got sick and that kind of took over. And now 10 years has passed and even that breakup kind of comes back on me. You know, it all gets mixed up together, you know. And I mean, I've had plenty plenty of tough moments in my life, but the main three are... You know, my parents getting sick and dying, and then that breakup, you know? And so, I don't know if anybody else can identify with this, but I think one of the things about grief is that a lot of emotions just swirl around, you know? And grief is not this independent thing. You know, sometimes people talk about grief, that's grieving, you know? But, you know, loss is like, loss is not... It's not solely about losing your your losing people, you know, like like through death. You know, you experience loss in so many ways, you know, and you know those emotions don't know the difference. They're just whipping around. So weirdly enough, that you know that that ex found out very late about my mom. She contacted me to say she was, you know, sorry to hear about it. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of contact, but it just, it just, it just added to the, it added to the, to the pain, you know, and it kind of reminded me that that's probably a little, uh, you know, weirdly enough, still a little raw because actually before I ever sort of completely got over that, and I've had other relationships since, by the way, but nothing like that. And suddenly I realized, Jesus, you know, I never really had a chance to properly get over that as I've been fucking worried about my parents for 10 years, you know? And also just like, because my relationship with my mother was so complicated anyway, I know it's such a fucking cliche, a fucking guy talking about his relationship with his mom, but because my relationship with my mother was so complicated anyway, and there's weirdly like certain elements of freedom from my mother's death, I don't, you know, I, let me explain that later, but just for now, let me just say that 
with grief, with, with sometimes with death comes certain liberations. You know, the absence of the negative parts of a person's presence actually can be quite liberating. And within that liberation, it was suddenly like I was looking back on this breakup with like fresh eyes. You know, and also just looking back on this breakup with 11 years of life experience and just a better understanding of who I am as, an, as a human. And it was kind of like, maybe people can identify with this, but sometimes you look back and you just want to take your fucking wiser self and put it back, you know, and just be like, oh, I'm sorry. All that shit that I thought was important, it wasn't, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets mixed up. And uh, so it was weird. Last night I did the show. It was good, you know. I was tired too after Tenerife. But the show was good. Good enough. Good enough that I felt like I did my job, but not good enough that I left with a sense of relief. But the sadness was in me, you know. The, 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 I was tired and the sadness was in me about something. And I just weirdly, I was driving home and I had this, des I, I, I had this desire to put love songs onto Spotify. I just felt like love songs was what I needed to listen to, you know? And I just allowed myself to grieve a little bit the loss of that relationship. So I just let those songs play and I just felt it. Just felt it. Sadness, regret. Because that's, that's it. That's life. I mean, that's the thing about death. It's just almost less complicated because whatever, whatever regrets you might have about your relationship with that person... Um, it wasn't your behavior that caused them to die, you know? So, but at the same time, you know, it, you ha and basically it's just, it's just, it's just confusing emotions that got tied into thinking about my mom or thinking about this relationship. But I put on Adele and, uh, I just, there's something about Adele's voice. I actually talk about this in the show, but I put on Someone Like You. I put on many songs, but I put on Someone Like You and I just let it do what it does to me. You know? And it was sad. And, I, you know, and I, I'm grateful, actually, that my mother's death has forced me to just let all these feelings come. Because... They never leave you unless you fucking deal with them. That's the truth, you know. They never leave you. And it's just been too long with some of this shit. So I'm glad. You know. And the crisis management of your, the illness of your parents, you know, it can hide a lot of stuff. I'm happy. And, you know, anyway, I don't want to talk too much about that because... There's another person involved, and I know they don't like me talking publicly about that stuff. So, anyway, that's just a, a bit that's relevant to me. And, you know, why I'm sharing with you guys 
I've had this thought recently that one of the cool things about all this mental health chat, because basically all the ways that a lot of people speak publicly about their mental health and their emotional state and their well-being, it really sounds like the way that people speak at AA and NA meetings. People don't realize that, but it's very similar. You know? And I like the fact that it's just become part of mainstream discussion. Because we used to be in like in meetings and we'd be like, they don't get it out there because they don't have to worry about this shit because they haven't been forced into dealing with their shit by addiction. But in actual fact, well, number one, it wasn't true. But number two, uh, there wasn't there wasn't people out there speaking publicly about how important this shit was. And there also wasn't as much chat about everybody's got problems and this is how you deal with them. You know, that's like the gift of addiction is it makes you fuck, it forces you to have a look at yourself. And, but nowadays it turns out that everybody really needed to be looking at themselves the whole time and now everyone talks this way. And it's great. You know, because now you got all these podcasts where essentially you're just listening to somebody share. It's like a fucking meeting. So I actually think these things are like meetings. I'm literally just sharing. But I love going to meetings because you love hearing people and identifying and empathizing and sympathizing or in the case of sometimes, you know, disagreeing or being challenged and making it think of, you know, making you think about you, you know? Um, so in this situation, I'm just being honest about the the emotions that are running around. The other thing about all the interviews, you know, that was tough is that like in the show, me and mama, I like I am I'm pretty open about the fact that my mother was like a pain in the hole. You know? And like particularly after the Roshan Ingle interview, you know, like my, myself and my mother had like a like a like a pretty good full circle relationship. And you know, and in the end it was pretty good, you know? And we, and all my brother, we were there for her, which I talked about before. And you know, so I like, I like the arc of our relationship, particularly because it's the only life I have. Uh, but you know, it, it I you have to sort of like you have to be honest about the things that were difficult about her. But I try to tell it in the sense of because I. I'm, uh, how do I explain this? I like to separate the two things. One is my journey and how my relationship with my mother affected who I am today. The positives and the negatives. And then there's the other journey, the journey of Eileen Bishop, which is independent. Her mothering of me, her mother, her job as a parent is a part of her life. You know, it's not her whole life. She didn't have me until she was in her mid-30s. So, you know, there's everything that happened up to that point, which was pretty tough. You know, she didn't have a great life. And then there's, you know, her job as a parent. You know, I think particularly, uh, you know, like she found life pretty overwhelming at times, you know. And I, I can clearly see why that happened. But, you know, she she passed on that that sense of being overwhelmed to us all the time. And there's nothing you can do. Kids pick it up. And kids suddenly feel bad 
you know, way too often if somebody is making it feel like they can't cope with their presence, you know, and that stress and all that, which I've talked about before. It's just a lot, you know, and myself and my, my brothers, we, we, we were definitely negatively affected by that stress, you know, that, that, that consistent sense of adrenaline and panic and worry. You know, we, we did not we did not live through that unscathed. Uh, and so then there is that, that, that battle that my mother had with ever coming to terms with that. And you got to remember that all the stuff that I just talked about, mental health, the you know, the openness of mental health. I mean, there was Oprah, you know, but there's just more openness about mental health and obviously anxiety, which... Clearly, my mother really, really suffered with, and I've talked about it before, but she was not ever admitting that she suffered from that. And she battled with that being put in her face for like 20 years. No, no, maybe less. Maybe like 15 to 20 years, you know? Like I said to my mother very early on when I was in my 20s, you know, you, you need fucking adult children of alcoholics or Al-Anon or fucking something because, you know, you're, 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 there's a craziness about you that is, that is coming from somewhere. And it, it's, it's not right. Like, you need to do something about it, you know? I, I, didn't, I didn't put it out in that way, you know? But at various different times when she was like, seething with resentment against a member of her family or, you know, whatever fucking intense drama was going on. You know, there was one particularly, she had a fucking resentment against somebody in her family because her her brother died uh, when he was 49, died of lung cancer. My Uncle Kevin, amazing guy. But, you know, death brings on all these other dynamic or like the nursing of somebody brings on these dynamics control dynamics who's in charge and you know my mother was an absolute control freak and hated not being in control and when she felt that she wasn't in control of that situation by god she fucking lashed out against the people who took away that power from her and she held on to that resentment for years and i mean it was seething and she would talk to me about it and at this stage I was in recovery you know a condescending early recovery too that's the worst time to talk to a recovering addict when they're in early recovery and they think they know fucking everything which I did I thought I knew everything it's so hilarious now because I'm like a much more well-rounded person have experienced much more life than in those early recovery days and I think I know fuck all now and I knew nothing back then and I literally thought I knew everything but one thing I was right about was challenging my mother on needing to go and talk to somebody or go somewhere to deal with all the shit that was going on for her because these resentments were fucking horrific. How can you live with that much bile running around in your body? You know? And I told her then, from from that time on after that, because sometimes it would be related to her anger at somebody else, and sometimes it would be related with, you know, just my growing intolerance for living with the negative energy of Eileen Bishop, I would tell her, Mom, you need help. Every one of your children has gone for help. Everyone has said, something's not right. 
I need help. What is so wrong with asking for help? What is so wrong with just putting your hands up and saying, this is too difficult. I need some help to, to understand what is driving this. I need some help to understand how I can step away from the intensity of this emotion and not hurt my relationships with other people around me. I need to heal. You know, I, I, and because in the, in the, in the, in the uncomplex, simple life I had in my mid twenties, even with that, I was going for help. And I said to her, I was like, what you, like, how can, look at all you've had to deal with in your life. You know, alcoholic parents, alcoholic husband, you know, alcoholic children and your own alcoholism. How can you not think that you need, you know, even just like, like a touch of help when everybody else in your family fucking goes for tons of it? Not because they're weak, but because it, it helps. Tiger Woods has a fucking swing coach. He's the best golfer in the fucking world. And he goes to somebody to see if they could help him fucking swing back, you know, or to see where, you know, something, some little quirk is kicked in, perhaps because he has a, he had a, a bit of pain in his shoulder and suddenly it put his swing a little off pain, off plane. But I mean, you know, if, if you were a golfer, your fucking body, your body hardly works and you're still trying to fucking, trying to fucking hit the ball. You need somebody to fucking help you. We all do. Everybody does. You don't admit your fucking flaws to anybody. You know? You don't say sorry. I mean, I don't think she ever did say sorry to any of these people and the fucking shit that she got up to. So I was there. We, as a family, were there pretty early on in our adulthood. You know, in, in us being responsible for ourselves, part of our lives. We did say, come on, do yourself a favor. Get some help. But she didn't until my dad died, you know? And actually, she didn't really go for help until I actually stopped talking to her, which is what I got into with Roshan Engel. And this is what, this is where I got paranoid because I thought, oh, fuck, is this going to read like I was cruel? Because when my dad got sick, or sorry, when my mother got sick, my aunts did throw that back in my face for a while. How, how you treated your mom after your dad died, but it wasn't like that, you know? And it, it's, like, too complicated to get into because I don't, I don't, I know for myself, but when you're trying to tell a quick narrative, sometimes you think, like, oh, shit, is the nuance of all this enough for people to realize that I wasn't being cruel? So I did get paranoid, you know? And then that, that but it did also make me just, just, just think about all that, you know? And it wasn't complete, you know? This is the thing. My dad died. It was all very clean. My mother died. It's not as clean. It's not as clean. A lot of things still up in the air for myself, you know? And I definitely wish I had, I mean, I have told my mother numerous times in that final section of her life, not, 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 not just, you know, just like, I sort of consider that last five years as like, uh, the, the, like a final chapter in my mother's life, like from 
well, really from when we started talking again. So that was probably like the final six or seven years. You know, she came to China New Year's 2013 and to 2014. And by then, like our relationship was very strong, positive. Like we had a great time in China. So really like from then, you know, from from when I, because we started talking before I went to China. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, I guess 2013 till the end, six years, was like a very good final chapter uh, in our lives. Uh, And loads of dynamics changed. And obviously she became increasingly helpless, so it's hard to stay in control uh, when when you can't look after yourself. Uh, but still, despite that, and despite the fact that all the resentments, well, not all, but the majority of resentments slipped, you know, slipped away, uh, it still wasn't as clean and complete as my dad, partially because my mother didn't know she was dying. So we didn't have that. We didn't have that year and a half that we had like with my dad, which was like, okay, this is it. Let's fucking, let's get into the love zone, you know, which we did. I never really got into the love zone with my mom. That's the truth. I got into the looking after her zone and that came from love, but it got expressed as caretaking didn't get expressed as love and honestly I wasn't comfortable with it being expressed in that way I don't know if people can identify with that but I found it hard to express the affection deeper than looking after her and there was some physical affection you know like you know, some physical touch sometimes where it was like trying to be reassuring. But, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't consistent and it wasn't comfortable, that part. But the, the caretaking part was a lot. And I was very comfortable with that, which coincidentally enough, by the way, was an exact role reversal of the way that my mother raised us because the caretaking part was immense. The providing, the organizing, the feeding, the, you know, the, 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 the motivating, all that part, she was great. 
the affection part was tough for her, you know? And it has remained that way for me. <laughs> I have to be honest. And if I had any regrets, you know, when I do these interviews and I think about that time, I wished that we were able to turn that corner just a touch more. You know? Just a touch more. It doesn't eat me up too much because it was such a such a journey from you know the the tougher times but yeah i kind of wish that i'd managed to push past that a little bit more for you know for her but for me too you know i probably was a little bit stubborn on that and you know i remember there was this moment where i was walking out of her apartment and she was kind of feeling bad for herself about something that was going on. And sometimes she would put it out there like, oh, I was a bad mother. You know, I know that you guys think I was a bad mother, you know. And like, it was more about the fact that she was very late to the game to realize like, oh, fuck, that anxiety was really fucking tough on these kids. And I don't say that on the pity pot, but she was late to the game. You know, I had been, we as a family, including my dad sometimes. And it's, like, listen, I know it's tough being a fucking mother and she was the only woman in the house. So, like, I, you know, I, I, I am, I am aware of how difficult my mother's life was. So, so don't think this comes from a place of, like, total blame on her because I, I, you know, I can, I can point out all my, my own flaws in another episode. But, uh, you know, she she was very late to the game in actually ex admitting that, you know, that that anxiety and stress was unnecessary. The low-level stress is normal, but the high-level stress was unnecessary. And she was very late to the party in admitting that. And most of the time towards the end, she she was, she was, she was very... I don't know, like, uh, she was kind of apologetic, uh, but sometimes she would still get into that mode of, I know you guys think I was a bad mom, you know? And I don't actually think my mother was a bad mom. I just think there were certain things that she did that were difficult for us to deal with. I don't actually think she was a bad mother because I, I, I think that there was a, like a wide spectrum of, of the parenting journey and, you know, I think we come somewhere in the in the middle, but it had its quirks. You know that that are, you know are are part of me today. You know, I I accept myself wholeheartedly, and I accept the relationship I had with my mother wholeheartedly, and I'm pretty happy with it. But at the same time, you know, it would have been a touch easier had my mother just like accepted it way earlier, and we would have all been over it way quicker. You know, but she was she fucking fought tooth and nail until after my dad died, and she actually started going to meetings herself. And it was only through going to meetings that she finally was just like, oh, fuck, I could just admit it and let go. So she was really, she had done that. She was doing it. She was in the process of doing it. But I do remember this moment where she was sitting on the couch, and it wasn't to do it with me, it was to do it with somebody else. And she said, I know something about, you know, being a bad mother or something. And I, I did say to her, I was like, Mom, 
you have to you have to let that go because you know you weren't a bad mother you weren't a bad mother you were a good mother you know we're all just cleaning house on certain aspects that we found difficult but you weren't you weren't a bad a bad mother you got to let that go but even that even that, that moment, I, I really do wish, and there's others, but I really do wish that I would have been able to just step in, even though I had like, I had private moments with my mother about our own relationship, but because this wasn't about me, it's about somebody else, I kind of wish I had just stepped in and just, just gave her a hug and just been like, don't, ma, it's, who gives a fuck? You know, I love you, your sons love you. Your husband loved you. You love us. Who gives a fuck? Instead of just saying it. I wish I had expressed it physically. But that was that was tough in our house. It was tough. You know, so there's just like a touch more regret in the in the grief with my mom. But I always knew they would because it was just more complicated. And she was difficult. I can't get this across enough. It was difficult to be affectionate with my mom. Because, you know, we could get real deep. Because I'm just throwing these things at you. But, like, I promise you, when we were younger, the the affection, rejection, was large. And there would have been many, many times where uh, you got repelled when you went looking for that affection. Because it wasn't just stress and anxiety with my mother. She was a cold woman. And you do learn after a while to not go there. So it can actually take a lifetime <laughs> to return to a place where you feel like it's safe. But the difference was in this scenario, and I knew it at the end of my mom's life, she wanted it. She was looking for that physical reassurance towards the end. And I, 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 I think I met the minimum requirement. I wasn't terrible, and I'm certainly not feeling guilty. But I, I did my best, but I did it more in the, the bishop way, which was I showed up with the, the duty and the help and the hospitals and the providing and the money. I did all that really well. I definitely fell short on the physical affection and the, the love reassurance. You know? And my mother was looking for it towards the end. And I, I, I gave enough, I think. I gave enough, but I do feel I could have gave a little bit more. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that I was seriously uncomfortable doing it a lot of the time. And I, I like hearing myself say that out loud because I think actually if I would take anything for, in terms of my own personal development from my mother's death is you're 44 years old and you just can't be fucking. You can't be coming up short in that area anymore. You know, enough is enough. And you can't have said to your mother in your mid-twenties, 
you know, enough is enough, do something about it, and then sit there and not do something about, you know, some of the shit that's driving negative aspects of your own life, you know? You can't do a show about your mother, which has a hint of regret about the things that your mother died wishing she had done better, and not fucking push yourself to make sure that you do certain aspects of your job as a human being better, you know? That has to be the legacy. It has to be, you know? And I like to think of aspects around, you know, survival. And, you know, my dad was physically abused. Horrific fucking childhood. Survived it. Survived alcoholism. To raise us with, with no violence, you know? and and to 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 be to be happy with whatever we chose to do with our lives my mother raised you know with the, the real bad alcoholism survived it you know and actually she raised us my dad made the bit of money but my mother like she did she did an incredible job with minimal resources now we were comfortable don't get me wrong but like she fought so hard that actually she died like she let you know she left us not bad i mean we're not talking about mega wealth here but considering that neither of my parents had an education you know it was it was a good job that they did despite the shit that was working against them you know and then a lot of illness and got over it you know and then the next generation the the residue of that fucking toxicity you know, poisoned us a little bit. I went to another country when I was 14. Alcoholism, drug addiction, cancer. But you just keep fucking getting over it and pushing forward. And, I, you know, when I, when I listen to all these people with their self-help mumbo-jumbo in relation to, like, goals, you know, a lot, a lot of times the mental health stuff, you know, it, it comes into like making money and success. But I like to think of it more as like emotional evolution, spiritual evolution, and just becoming a better human being, like almost like a drive towards enlightenment. But but enlightenment in relation to real life, not enlightenment in relation to, I love meditation and all that, but sometimes I feel like people, they want to escape so that they can experience inner peace. But inner peace is really fucking easy when you're absent of real life's challenges. So I like to think of all these things as at every challenge, at every juncture, we learn and we become better people. Regardless of what you achieve in your career, financial success, status, regardless of all that, you get through the challenge and you, you let that be programmed into who you are. And you become better. It's an update. You fucking update the app. And suddenly you are more robust. All updates come with new bugs. And you work them out too. But it requires you to be honest. About what's wrong. And to face it. And that is what I am trying to do. With my mother's death. Not just grieve. Not just feel the sadness. And not allow the sadness, the residue of other things, and not be afraid to allow them to, to, to surface up too. 
not just to feel the sadness and the grief, but also to take the lessons of my mother's life, my relationship with my mother, and say, we're going to be better. We're going to be better in our relationships. We're going to be better to ourselves, to myself. We're going to be honest about where, what behaviors are negative, where are you acting out, and, and try to challenge that so that when I'm on my deathbed, whether there's a child there or not, when I'm on my deathbed, perhaps I die with less regret. You know? Because it'll just be the same thing. The cycle repeats itself unless you you challenge this stuff, you know? But we'll see. But I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm not going to have sat there and challenged my mother and, and not challenged myself. And, I, and I'm not going to be dishonest about how I could have been better with the physical affection. It was a missed opportunity. Fuck it. Nothing you can do. And anyone, I think anyone who's lost anybody knows that that's part of it. The finality brings things that you can't do. The challenge, I guess, is to not let the regret consume you. And that's why I turned it into a, a motivation, because it's all I got. All I can do is let it educate me and guide me to the future. And that's more important than a grave, or more important than where you spread the ashes. It's your legacy. So that's her legacy. The education continues. So, I was going to talk about addiction, but I'm not now. I can't be fucked. I'll talk about it another time. It's uh, It's been an hour and five minutes. I hope that's interesting. It certainly helps me. I hope it's good for you guys. I hope it's not selfish. I don't, I don't think it's selfish. Hmm? Probably overly honest once or twice, but whatever. And sometimes I'm only making... I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it, you know? So sometimes maybe it got a bit wishy-washy, but that's okay. All right, team. Keep an eye out. Uh, if um, I'll let you know. I'll let you know via social media if this is going to shift over to the shift on Fridays or not. And uh, me and Mama on sale all over Ireland. Good shows coming up. Des Bishop at Des Bishop on Instagram. Um, I'm rushing this now because I really have to pee. At Des Bishop on Twitter. Facebook.com forward slash Des Bishop. And uh, I'm on TikTok. Des Bishop 5. Des Bishop 5 on TikTok. I'll see you guys soon. Love you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.